Isaiah chapter 52 and into 53. In the book of Isaiah, we find the Lord's warnings to Israel regarding coming captivity. This captivity is as a result of their obstinate rebellion against the Lord. However, like many prophets, Isaiah, in the midst of his warnings to Israel, also has promises, hope. Although Israel is under God's judgments, God's covenant promises of an eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells, in which redeemed men and women live in the presence of God for eternity, those promises still stand even in the midst of judgment. And so in the midst of passages of judgment, Isaiah makes it very clear that God will fulfill all of his promises, despite what it might seem like in the moments. Although God's people would rebel against them, God would not remove his steadfast love, his covenant love. He would not violate his covenant. He will not alter his promises. Instead, through chastisement and through discipline, he would purify a remnant of Israel to be his forever. And so within the book of Isaiah, there are four very significant passages. And those passages give us that future hope of a salvation. And interestingly, that future hope, that salvation which is to come, is... uh, really going to be effectuated by one significant unnamed individual in these four passages. And so these four passages in Isaiah is what we call the servant songs, because in each of these there is an individual simply referred to as the servant of the Lord. One day this servant of the Lord would come and fulfill the Lord's promises, covenant promises to Israel and to all his chosen people, and would bring forth again the culmination uh, of all of his promises. Those four passages are Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the first three before we get into the fourth. In Isaiah chapter 42, the servant of the Lord is presented as one who will be upheld by God. He will be chosen by God. He is one in whom God's soul delights. It says that he will not break a bruised reed. He will be meek. He will not quench a burning wick. He'll be gentle. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in all the earth. He is one who will be given by God to the people as a covenant. He is one who will be a light for the nations. He will open blind eyes. He will bring out prisoners. He will deliver those who are in darkness. That's the servant of the Lord as presented in Isaiah chapter 42. Then in Isaiah 49, we see that this servant of the Lord will bring Israel back to God. He'll be honored in the eyes of God. God is his strength. He will be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Further, kings of the earth will prostrate themselves before this servant of the Lord. Again, we're told that he's chosen by God. And again, it's emphasized that God will give him as a covenant to his people. Like Isaiah 42, we're also told that uh, he will have a special mercy on the oppressed, the downtrodden. He's going to rescue prisoners. He's going to satisfy those who are hungry and those who are thirsty. He's going to protect those, uh, 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 protect them from danger. He's going to have pity upon such people. And he's going to lead them by springs of water like a shepherd might lead sheep. That's Isaiah 49. And then in Isaiah chapter 50, We read about the servant of the Lord. He's one who will be given by God knowledge and instruction. He speaks the words of God, which brings sustenance to the weary. He also 
We also see him introduced as the servant of the Lord who will, surprisingly, suffer. He's going to willingly give himself to suffer disgrace at the hands of his enemies. In his suffering, however, God will deliver him and God will vindicate him. And then we come to the fourth servant song, beginning in Isaiah chapter 52 and into 53. And so, uh, shockingly, what we're going to find in this servant song is that from a, a human perspective, it appears to be kind of a counterclimax. The servant of the Lord upon whom all of uh, all earthly kings will prostrate themselves, this servant of the Lord who will bring forth a kingdom of righteousness and justice, and you say, it all sounds like victory. But then we come to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and we find, again, that this servant of the Lord is actually going to accomplish all of this through his own suffering and shameful death. And so Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13, let's read together. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah is saying, uh, who could, who could uh, think of this? Who could believe what we're saying? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth." Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so in this servant song written by Isaiah, many hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, he explicitly describes not just the character and not just the ministry, but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
More than this, he explains even the theology, the theology behind the cross. Why a sacrificial death? Why a perfect individual rejected by men hanging upon the cross and bearing the wrath of God? He explains the theology behind this as well hundreds of years before Christ comes onto the scene. So let's just work our way through this song. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Like barren soil that just suddenly and unexpectedly sprouts out up a healthy plant. The Messiah steps into the earth at a time where there is spiritual barrenness and desolation. Jesus enters such a circumstance and he brings life and light where there is death and darkness. He would come in a way which confounded the superficial pride of men. Born to an unknown woman in an unknown town, revealed to lowly shepherds, remember, born in a manger. His ministry would confound men as well as he ministers to the weak, the tired, the oppressed, the sinful. Through him and his earthly ministry, the Lord would confront human pride and he would confound human wisdom. Isaiah chapter 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." But Christ would come at a time when Israel was corrupt, led by hypocritical legalists, unfaithful shepherds who victimized the sheep instead of leading them to God. Instead of swinging wide the open, uh, swing wide open the uh, door to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says that they slammed it shut in the faces of those who would enter in. Instead of making men and women children of God, they made them twice fold the children of hell. Instead of teaching the word of God, they taught their own commandments as if they were doctrine. These leaders were children of Satan, and they did the bidding of their father. What hope they had of a Messiah was corrupt. They were self-righteous. They had dreams and visions of political conquest overthrowing their oppressors, and they projected that upon their vision of the Messiah. So when the Messiah came and he was not what they expected, as we're going to see, they rejected him. So when the servant did come, when Christ did arrive, he came in a way which the Jews did not expect, blinded by their own pride, blinded by their own self-righteousness. And we don't judge too harshly because even today, as we present Christ to individuals, many reject because they're blinded by their own pride and their own self-righteousness. So Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The nature of Jesus' birth and his family, his appearance, how he conducted his ministry, none of it appealed to human self-righteousness. None of it squared with human wisdom. And so, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Christ came and is rejected. Why? I mean, he came with an offer of salvation. So why would men reject one who came with an offer of salvation? 
Because to offer salvation to a religious hypocrite is to say that that one is in need of a Savior. Christ came with a and leveled the playing field. All are sinners and all are in need of a Savior. Well, the self-righteous don't want to hear that. Uh, we are descendants of Abraham. I mean, we are shoo-ins to the kingdom just by virtue of our uh, genetics. So we're Jews after all. But Christ came and said, all must be saved. Repent and be baptized. All needed to be saved because all are sinners. Again, this is too much for the hypocritical uh, religionists. So John chapter 1, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so Isaiah 53, 3 says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Was Christ a joyful individual? Sure. But he was also a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? Grief in the face of rejection. Grief in the face of those who didn't even understand the moment of their salvation. Matthew 23, Christ cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's grieving, pronouncing judgment and desolation over the temple, a temple that long ago had lost the presence of God, a temple that had become a shell of its former self because it had been uh, infected with the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. Luke chapter 19, it says, When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Well, let's just make it personal. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, this could be said of you. Here you are sitting under a proclamation of the gospel. Woe be to the one who hears a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an open invitation to come to God through Jesus, but is so blinded by their own pride or self-righteousness, that they don't know even what's happening around them. This was true with the Jews in Christ's day. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus took Peter with him and two sons of Zebedee, began to be sorrowful and troubled, it says. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, uh, grieved by the rejection of human beings, grieved by sinfulness, grieved by the curse of sin. You see it as well as he weeps when he hears of the death of Lazarus and so on. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And ultimately, that sorrow and grief coming to a culmination on the cross. Look in verse 3 again. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And jump back up to chapter 52 and verse 14, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His body was so wrecked upon the cross that he was revolting. Men hid their faces from him. They couldn't look at him in disgust, in horror, horror yes, but also they hid their faces in disdain. Look in verse 4. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. These Jews who watch Jesus Christ hang upon the cross see him and say, well, he's 
getting exactly what he deserves. The one who had been chosen by the Lord to bring covenant promises to pass. The one who came with love and mercy for the weak and rejected. The one who came only speaking words of righteousness now suffers a revolting death. And those who look upon him respond by simply saying that he's getting what he deserved. God is punishing him for his sins. How could this be? How could they be this blind? Well, on multiple occasions, the Jews would accuse Jesus Christ of blasphemy. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews heard that, and the Bible says they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you for blasphemy, uh, to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so they're building a case against Jesus. He claims to be God, clearly. And so, when the crucifixion comes, uh, God's finally, finally punishing him for his blasphemy. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, Jesus before the high priest. It says that he remained silent and made no answer to the high priest. And then the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so you understand that when Christ was upon the cross, suffering, that many looked upon him and said he's getting exactly what he deserved. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So God, in his perfect timing, sent the Messiah. He sent him at a time when his people, the Jews, had so corrupted Judaism that they no longer possessed the ability to recognize or receive the Messiah as promised in the Scriptures. So while the Jews were puffed up in self-righteousness, consumed with worldly thinking, corrupted by a hypocritical religious system, God quietly sent his Son, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, And he did it in a way which confounded all of their expectations and all of their religious instincts. And he did so in a way exactly predicted by Scripture. They were, these individuals were spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. Their hearts were hard, their consciences were seared. Far from welcoming the Messiah and bowing before him, they despised him. They esteemed him not, it says. That is, they considered him useless. Cast him aside like revolting refuse. But I want you to notice something about this passage. Look in verse 2 and 3. Look at the words which indicate the tense here. For he grew up before him like a young plant. Well, that seems like it's past tense, looking backwards. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He continues, uh, They hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Very interesting. This is a prophetic passage, looking forward hundreds of years. But it seems to be worded in the past tense. Looking forward to a time when individuals will be looking back, and upon looking back, this will be their confession. Isaiah is writing about future events, but wording it as if the speaker, again, is looking back and recalling past events. And so, strangely, we have a prophecy which looks forward to a time when individuals are looking to the past. What we find here 
is the words of a people, a faithful remnant, you could say, a people who rejected the Messiah, yet at some point future come to that mournful realization of what they had done. And this text is that confession. The speaker states that the manner in which Israel viewed the Messiah and how the sinful blindness led them to reject them, he states that, but then he begins to show how the veil of confusion at some point was lifted from them. Now we get it. Now we understand. We had it completely wrong. We understand now who the Messiah actually was. We understand what his rejection and death actually signified. Zechariah also looks forward to this day in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's this same moment that's captured in Isaiah chapter 53. And so look at what these men begin to ultimately realize in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's a whole lot different from esteeming him stricken, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But now we see it. Now we understand that his suffering was not because of his own sin, but he was suffering because of our sin. It's as if they're saying, we felt fully justified in our hatred and rejection of him. Seeing him upon the cross, we saw the just judgment upon the sinner, a blasphemer. He was getting what he deserved. He came with a message which condemned Israel, which grouped the Jews right in with the Gentiles. He confounded our leaders. He associated with sinners. Beyond this, he tried to make himself one with God, and so we despised him and did so in conceited self-righteousness. Surely our hatred of him was in service towards our God. But what a stark realization then dawns upon them as the Spirit of God lifts that blindness And seeing his torn, bleeding body, a scene so revolting that they turned their heads away, we began to realize that it wasn't for his sins that he suffered, but the horror we were seeing was the horror of our own iniquities. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Again, it's as if they're saying, in our spiritual blindness, we looked upon him as he writhed in pain and felt no empathy, no pity. After all, he was getting what he deserved. But now we see it. His wounds were wounds for our transgressions. His crushing was for our iniquities. The sin that we we despised in him was not actually his own sin, but it was our sin. He was suffering because of us. Yet, all of a sudden, our eyes began to see it. He wasn't a sinner. He was a Savior. He wasn't a blasphemer. He was Lord. He wasn't refuse to be cast out. He was a pearl of great price to be treasured and adored. He wasn't a failed religious leader, selfishly seeking a following. He was the true shepherd of God, gathering together the flock of the Lord. 
As God lifted the blindness, Jesus upon the cross transformed in the eyes of these individuals as the ultimate villain suffering the just penalty of his own sins to one who was the suffering sacrifice, willingly giving himself for the sins of the very people who had rejected him. They say, he suffered for us. He was our substitute. Paul obviously picks up on this theology in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And again, this is reflected in Isaiah 53.5, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. That is through the death of Christ. By bearing our sins and suffering the penalty that rightfully belonged to us, he made peace between a sinful humanity and the holy God. God's wrath was absorbed by Christ as he hung upon the cross, and that same wrath was then turned away from sinners, all who would believe in him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son. That's uh, what Christ accomplished upon the cross, taking sinners, reconciling them to the Father through his own self-sacrifice. He is the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, dying in the place of sinners, not for his own sins, bearing the sins of all who would believe in him. So Christ didn't die because he was an enemy of God, as they thought. He died to reconcile enemies to God. The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ produces peace between God and man. Why was this necessary, we ask? I mean, that's some incredible lengths to go to to bring sinners to God. It was necessary because of what we read in verse 6 of Isaiah 53. Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now in this moment, as we look at verse 6, all of us are put in the same predicament as the Jews in Jesus' day. Christ came and declared all to be sinners and that no one can come to the Father except through him. And this confounded the wisdom of the Jews, confounded the self-righteousness of the Jews, because in their minds, they were not sinners who needed to be saved. Yet the pronouncement is what? All are sinners. And there may be somebody here this morning who, frankly, recoils at such an idea. A sinner, not me. I'm a pretty good person by my own standard. And again, you find yourself in the exact same predicament as those Jews in Jesus' day. Yet the pronouncement is this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, no exception, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a declaration of what? The nature of mankind. Fallen. Depraved. This is an indictment not just on the Jews, but upon every man. This is clear as, again, Paul pulls this forward in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's no good done by us which satisfies the righteous requirement of God. Everyone has strayed from God. Every man going his own way, doing his own desires, living for himself, becoming his own moral authority, becoming, frankly, his own God. 
All human beings born into the world are born into iniquity. All are sinners, sinners by nature, sinners by practice. There are no exceptions. The idea of going astray assumes that there is a right way, right? Uh, What is that right way? That's the law of God and his righteousness. In committing iniquity, we have transgressed the law of God and deserve the just penalty of that rebellion. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What is one of the purposes of the law? One of the purposes of the law is to expose the sinfulness of man so that no man can answer back to God regarding his own righteousness. Every mouth will be stopped so that all will be held accountable to God. And so that's the state that every human being born into this world finds themselves in. Lost. Astray. Sinful. Rebellious. Iniquitous. Transgressing the law of God and deserving of His just penalty. How then can a sinful world find peace with God? Verse 6 again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has, what what has he done? Laid on him, the servant, Christ, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The speaker sees in Christ's death more than an atrocity committed by lawless men. He sees a divine act whereby the Lord was laying upon Jesus the iniquities or the sins of all of those who would believe in him. What does this mean? That Christ became a sinner on the cross? No. But on the cross, God the Father as judge declared Christ as if he had committed your sins and my sins and doled out the just punishment for those sins. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The imagery here in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 is an allusion to uh, what the Lord had instructed Israel to do on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, we read about the scapegoat. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And so this is highly symbolic, the idea being the priest then prays over the goat as if the sins of all of Israel are being borne by this goat, and the goat is then sent out into the wilderness as if he is taking all the sins of Israel away. Highly symbolic, and obviously looking forward to the ultimate one who would come and bear sins, which is Christ. It continues... And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you, among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, were they totally clean in their conscience? No, uh, that would not happen until the coming of Christ. But you see the picture. There's a scapegoat here, the foreshadowing of the Messiah who would come. And Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon Christ, just the way that Aaron would lay the iniquities of all of Israel upon the scapegoat. Except Jesus didn't go into the wilderness and take our sins and leave them there. What he did is he died and was buried and rose again, leaving all of that in the grave. Remarkably, however, our passage tells us something else about the Messiah. 
He's not just the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, but he's also the sacrificial lamb in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now you know why John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, just declared, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He opened not his mouth. The Messiah would not only die for our sins, but he would do so willingly. He didn't protest. He didn't fight back. He went silently to his death, giving himself willingly for us. John chapter 10, verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You hear some people sometimes saying, they're just, uh, just disgusted by the idea of the crucifixion. This is divine child abuse. This isn't divine child abuse. Jesus Christ lays down his life. Jesus Christ came understanding that the cross was his ultimate purpose, and he came and he gave himself willingly for us. He says in verse 18, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so again, he did not protest. He did not resist. He went to the cross willingly. He he would bear the sins of the people which the Father placed upon him. Matthew 27, verse 12, it says, When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, when he, uh, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have our iniquities placed upon the Messiah, he bearing the just penalty of our sin, that which is deserved by those who have gone astray from God. That penalty being the just wrath of God towards sin. That wrath then being satisfied as God is pleased to pour out His judgment upon the Son. And then peace is made between the holy God and sinful men through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah. Yes, wicked men crucified Jesus, yes, but behind all of this was the Lord's sovereign working. This is a Trinitarian uh, act. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, working redemption. Greater than the suffering inflicted by the hate-filled, vindictive, religious hypocrites was the divine wrath which Jesus willingly bore for the sins of the people. Look in Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cast off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt and it continues. But then remarkably, what we find here is, Isaiah not only sees the birth of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, and sees the perfect life of the Messiah, 
sees the rejection, uh, sees the ministry, sees the rejection, sees the crucifixion. Uh, but you realize that Isaiah actually looks forward and sees the resurrection of the servant of the Lord in verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, wait a second. How can one, Jesus Christ, never married, never had children, and died? How can he have offspring? But it says somehow through his death, he will see his offspring. What is this? Look around. Multitudes who have believed in Jesus Christ by faith have become his offspring. Christ, through his death upon the cross, sees the culminate or sees the results of what he has worked. And so, how is this possible? Well, it's possible through resurrection. He didn't stay in the grave. And so he rises from the dead. Three days later, he achieves a victory over sin, death, and Satan. He's accomplished salvation, and he sees the product. He sees the spoils of victory, which is multitudes becoming followers of Christ, reconciled to the Father. He sees his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He's going to live eternally after he dies. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He accomplishes all that the Lord has sent him to accomplish. Again, how is this possible? To accomplish this through death? Well, Acts chapter 2, 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He dies, but death can't hold him. Death had no hold on him. He was not a sinner. Instead, he bore our sin, took it to the grave, and left it there. And he rises again victorious. So then through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and his resurrection, he accomplishes the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That's what he's accomplished. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. The servant Jesus will be fully satisfied with what he has accomplished through his own suffering. This reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, for who, uh, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knows what his sacrificial death will accomplish. And so, though grieved by it, he goes uh, to the cross, even with joy, understanding what's on the other side of the cross. What is it? Many will be accounted righteous, according to verse 11. And it says that when he sees, his soul will be satisfied. Satisfied. I mean, have you gotten a report card lately? What do you want to see on your report card? Satisfactory? Do you want to see, oh, he satisfied all requirements. That doesn't seem to be uh, uh, very uh, commending. This is not a satisfaction which simply says meets minimum requirements. What does it mean when it says his soul shall see and be satisfied? The idea here is full satisfaction of God's righteous requirements so that his wrath and judgment is turned away from sinners. There's a term for this in the New Testament, and it's propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. If you're here this morning and you're just trying, you're part of some religious system, some religious tradition, and you're just trying to be righteous. 
I'm trying to keep God's law. I'm trying to keep his rules so that I can be found righteous before him. Give it up. It doesn't work. We are all lost. We are all depraved. We have all gone astray. And what we actually need is a righteous, which is not our own, as we're going to see in a moment. But Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You can't get it from the law. But now we know how we can have it. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how you receive the righteousness of God, through faith in Christ. Plain as day, okay? There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation. This is the ultimate satisfaction of God's wrath. His wrath is turned away. He is fully satisfied by Christ, and now there is no wrath left for those who belong to Christ. The life and death of Christ fully satisfied God so that his wrath has been turned away. For whom? For those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it says. These are declared righteous, not on the basis, again, of their personal goodness, but on the basis of their God-given faith. Again, look in verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, counted righteous. So we said that Christ now, like that scapegoat, bears the iniquity of us all. And so, like Aaron would put his hands upon the scapegoat and proclaim the iniquities or the sins of the people upon that goat, were they actually on the goat? Was the goat actually a sinner? No. But it was declared as if it was so. And so, when Christ was upon the cross, the Father places our iniquities upon the Son as if he has committed all of our sin and he bears that iniquity. But now something else happens. Not only is he accounted a sinner and punished as if he is, but as an accomplishment of what he does upon the cross, now many also are accounted as righteous. And so it's as if the Lord puts his hands upon your head and my head and says that the righteousness of Christ is now accounted as if it is yours. And so here's a great exchange. Our sin for the righteousness of Christ, Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you want the righteous works that you try to do to be counted as uh, the extent of your righteousness? And say, okay, on the merit of what all the good works that I've done, I think that this meets the perfect holy standard of God. I think that I have kept the law Personally and perfectly and perpetually, I think I've done it. And so, Lord, I think I've earned my way in. So just count my righteousness as all the righteousness I need. Or, Lord, I have believed in Jesus Christ, that he died upon the cross for me, that he bore my sins, and you punished him in my place. And now through faith in him, I understand that you will grant me his righteousness. Though I don't deserve it, by your grace, in response to the faith you've given me, I know that that's how I will attain righteousness. That's the only right response. So this morning, will you believe in Jesus Christ? You, like every other man and woman like me, born into this world, are a sinner. You, like the rest of mankind, have gone astray from the Lord. You, like every other person, separated from God and in need of reconciliation. 
Further, you, like everyone else, like myself, cannot attain favor with God through your own righteousness or through your own good works. You, like every other human being, need a righteousness which is not your own. Through faith in Jesus Christ and what He accomplished for you on the cross, the Lord will not only count your sin as if it is paid by Christ, but will count Christ's perfect righteousness as if it is your own. And again, how does one attain that righteousness? By grace, as a gift, when you believe by faith. So in conclusion, look one more time at verse 12. See, amazingly, Isaiah sees even beyond the death of Christ, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He sees even beyond that, and he sees the exaltation of Christ in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's the picture here? The idea is that of a victorious king going into battle, defeating all of his enemies, and then capturing the spoil, and bringing it back and sharing it with others. Jesus defeats sin and death and Satan and has the spoils of victory in hand. He raises from the dead, he's exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he shares the spoils of that victory with all who belong to him. Colossians chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Salvation now is an open invitation to all. These are the spoils of Christ's victory. Respond in faith. So if you'll trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and confess Him as your Lord, you also will share the spoils of Christ's victory. You also will be reconciled to the Father. You also will receive the Lord's Holy Spirit. You also will be declared righteous in His sight. So we have God, who after 400 years of silence, at a time of spiritual barrenness, sent His ultimate revelation to His people in the person of the Messiah. Yet He did so in a way that was unexpected. Unexpected by Israel, undesired by Israel, the Messiah came meekly with a message which confounded the Jews. They were so inflated with self-righteousness that instead of receiving their Savior and his message of repentance with humility, they rejected it out of religious pride. They despised him. They relished in his death. They counted him as a transgressor who rightly deserved the judgment of God. Yet, in our passage, the speaker reveals the coming attitude of a remnant of Jews as their spiritual blindness is removed, and they consider again, through new eyes, the death of Christ. And what do they realize? That Jesus Christ was the Messiah, who went to the cross both willingly and as a fulfillment of God's divine will. There on the cross, God placed upon him the guilt of all who would believe in him. And subsequently punished Christ as if those sins were his. Christ was then buried and rose again, victorious over sin and death, distributed the benefits of that victory to the church. God's wrath was satisfied, peace was made with man, and Christ's righteousness was given to those for whom Christ died. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Christ and the wonders of salvation. 
We also thank you for the harmony of the scriptures to see such a explicit prophecy of the birth and life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, and all the theology that holds it together, given hundreds of years before Christ came. We thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for Christ. Help us this morning who are believers as we partake in the Lord's table to consider the death of Christ and what he has accomplished for us, how he accomplished all of your will through his perfect life and his sacrificial death. If there's any here this morning who are not yet sinners, I pray that you would help them to see their need, who are not yet saved, uh, who are still in their sin. I pray that you would help them to see their need for Jesus. And I pray that they would express their faith in him and that through that faith, by your grace, they also could be counted righteous. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.